This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Umar Pagan Ampake Pagan, on the show with me today, Dr. Derek Hand. He's a senior lecturer and head of the School of English in Dublin City University, and he's here today to talk James Joyce and Ulysses, or rather, He's here to convince me as to why I should give the novel another chance. Derek, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. But before we get into my difficulties with uh, Ulysses, tell me about Joyce. Talk to me about the Ireland in which he lived. Uh, He was born in uh, 1882, so he is a child of the late 19th century. Um, I think he lived in very interesting times in Ireland at the time because... It was a time of political ferment uh, towards uh, independence that would finally come uh, in 1922. But also, hand in hand with that political movement, was a cultural movement, um, which we call the literary revival. Uh, And in a sense, it wasn't about making uh, Irish culture and language and literature and art interesting to a wider audience, but actually making it interesting to the Irish themselves. Right. Um, And so... There was a sort of self-consciousness around Irish identity, questions of Irishness, um, also a desire for a kind of native art uh, and uh, a sense of striving towards modes or mediums that would allow the Irish story to be told and emerge uh, for itself, as it were. Um, So that background, I think, is important to Joyce. While he... Because we see a little bit of it in the Dubliners, which I absolutely adore. Yeah. And... That quest for identity, that sense of Irish nationalism, no, so, sure. uh, this idea of, I mean, could we call it a middle class? <laughs> well, I suppose they aspire to be middle class, as we yeah. all do, um, still do. Um, yeah, and I think he, he, you know, there was those cultural movements, those national or political movements, but there was also great poverty uh, in Ireland at the time. Uh, and Joyce would have known that and seen it and actually experienced it himself because his own family's sort of trajectory was from a kind of upper middle class life to abject poverty because his father was a wastrel and spent the money and so on. Um, so he knew uh, aspects of that. So he, he also w- was aware of the system uh, and tried to work against it. And I think his fear was in terms of Ireland that if independence was given, the same mistakes would be made that all would change would be the names from a prime minister to a Taoiseach, um, (laughs) a a, a parliament to a Doyle. These are sort of Irish uh, words, Gaelic words. Um, And that really the system itself wouldn't change and therefore true independence would not sort of arrive. So his work, I think, um, operates in that uh, milieu, um, aware of the issues, aware of the questions, but trying to find his own way um, uh, through those um, uh, questions, those bigger sort of uh, national questions. Yeah, because his work is in many ways this amalgam of all of these converging ideas and issues and influences. But where was, how was it viewed at the time? Was Were his books viewed as nationalistic works? Uh, I wouldn't have thought so. I would, he would have, I suppose, seen himself and others too as maybe not in opposition, but certainly critical of, say, the work of the poet W.B. Yeats, um, the kind of work that was going on in the Abbey Theatre. I mean, he was very sort of distrustful of this image of the Irish as 
uh, a peasantry, rural-based, that that's where authentic Irishness resided because he was a city boy. He came from the urban space and said, look, you know, we live here too uh, and we need to tell those kinds of stories. So he was wary of a manufacturing of something inauthentic, um, certainly. But did people read his work uh, in Ireland and understand it? I think they did. I think they would have felt you know, that he was holding up a mirror, as he said himself, that was showing the kind of warts and all um, uh, image. I mean, he did say that he wanted to show the Irish uh, to themselves as they were, not in some romantic, sanitised way. And uh, that's like a lot of writers were doing that at the time, not just in Ireland, but in Britain and so on. Uh, That kind of general modernist uh, uh, movement of laying bare all those things had been sort of uh, uh, hidden till that time. Uh, And so he would have been a part of that. And I think people would have been a little aghast, you know. And also, he was sort of presenting things that really polite society didn't present, you know, sexuality. Oh, we'll try and to so ignore. And so. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah. some of the... I, I love Joyce's phrases, mm. especially the ones that aren't very kosher, which I can't say on radio, <laughs> but they are some of the best filthy phrases ever coined in literature. Sure. And I remember somebody sort of saying that at one stage, Leopold Bloom goes to the toilet and, and thus ended the constipation that people obviously experienced uh, in the 19th century because nobody went to the toilet in the 19th century <laughs> novel. Um, but, you know, th- that aspect of presenting life as it is lived, I think, is important. Um, and he does that in Dubliners. Uh, he does that in Portrait and magnificently so uh, in, in, in Ulysses. And I think that kind of realism... I think, is associated with uh, Joyce's work, not just in Ireland, but I think internationally, um, that this is um, experience uh, as it is lived. This is the world as we uh, encounter it every day, not modified or sanitized or romanticized. So the good, the bad, the indifferent. And I think that's one of his techniques, particularly in Dubliners, um, that at times his view is so steady and unwavering I, as a reader, I think we as readers want to turn away from these characters, but we're forced to sort of look at their moment of shame. He is so absolutely sure as to who these people are. There is, you're absolutely right, he's unwavering in his Mm. depictions. Mm. Uh, And for those who don't know, uh, The Dubliners are a series of short stories, 15, am I right? Uh, I think 14, 14, 14, Um, which kind of give you a slice of life, if you will, of the Irish experience in 1914. Yeah. And it's, it's remarkable. Uh, yeah. Like you said, he's completely unwavering in his depiction of these people. Now, I'm curious, though, as to that transition, because Ulysses would come out seven, eight years later, later. in 1922. Yeah. Yes. And he would get the idea for it around the same time. Time as, as, as the final story of the dead. I think he always felt that Dubliners uh, was a very negative and critical view of, of Ireland. Nobody wins. Uh, failure abounds for all classes, for all genders, for the young, the old, the infirm. Really, <laughs> nobody escapes. Um, and he felt that, you know, I suppose he had to write those stories at a certain time, but that he wanted to, in, in some way with Ulysses, uh, and particularly through the character uh, Leopold Bloom, present a kind of humanity that could be celebratory or celebrated. Um, and 
I think he achieves that, and that could be one reason why you should uh, try and reread uh, says, <laughs> um, that uh, the the ordinariness of of Bloom, with all his faults, with all the trials and tribulations that he experiences, um, but that there's something heroic uh, and modernly heroic uh, about Bloom and the way in which uh, he lives, um, and I think in that way. In Ulysses, he can be both critical of Ireland because he can be critical of the politics. He can be cr- critical of the hyper-masculinity of some of the characters. He can be critical uh, of the social system and so on. But he also wants to sort of celebrate um, the humanity of, of characters. Um, because I think, I think there's a recognition on his part that all of us live within systems that are beyond our, our control in many ways. And we're, we're, we're made by them and we react to them. And sometimes they don't bring the best out in us. Uh, and I think he, he, he tries to combat that, particularly with, the, with his uh, character, Leopold Bloom. So I think there's a move from being overtly critical and negative to, as I say, it's not wholly celebratory, but at least opening up that possibility. In literary canon, Don Quixote... Moby Dick, War and Peace, Ulysses, they're all kind of up there. And very big novels too. Big, big <laughs> novels. I think the copy I have is about 700, yeah, 800 pages, pages, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And where does it rank among the Irish? Certainly, there is an argument that um, Irish novelists learned nothing from Joyce. <laughs> that it was our poets that actually learned something. There's a, a work of criticism by Dylan Johnson called, you know, Irish poetry after Joyce, right? So and you're thinking, no, no, he's, he's a novelist. But there's a sense in which his focus on the individual, um, his celebration of the modern individual uh, as the kind of new figure of 20th century literature um, his playfulness with language in terms of form and his experimentation with the novel form. There's a sense in which novelists could never really copy that because to do so would be just to enter into sort of parody or imitation. There's a sense in which Beckett said that, of, of Joyce's essays, that um, it isn't about something, it is the thing itself. Hmm. I, it's beyond uh, imitation. Um, so there's a sense in which novelists could never really follow the inimitable book um, uh, and, and perhaps went off in, in different uh, directions. But it is important, I think, in Irish literature because for me, in terms of, of prose and fiction, it is uh, perhaps the, the, the great expression of the kind of revivalist energies um, and uh, in many ways managed to both be utterly local I think any Irish person reading uh, the novel in 1922 would say, my goodness, this is just, this is too ordinary. You know, this is just you know, the, the, the absolute daily round of cups of tea and meeting such and such a person and so on. Um, while also transcending the local and entering into the global where people from everywhere can read uh, Ulysses and see aspects of their experience uh, played out uh, within the novel. So I think it is important, certainly. I think the fact that he celebrates individuality, I think, is certainly important because I suppose with the emergence of the free state or independence in the 1920s, we have a kind of uh, a sense in which a, a particularly conservative Catholicism begins to dominate everyday life. Um, that kind of morality is imposed, which goes against individual um, uh, freedom or freedoms. 
Uh, and certainly Ulysses is important because of its celebration of the individual uh, and and uh, its elevation uh, of, of the individual in that way. So it's important, I think, within Irish literature, but at times it seems to me that it's more important within that wider international literature. Uh, I was at the university this morning and there's a sense in which Joyce, which I would know, is taught on you know, modern British drama or, sorry, fiction or right. modernist uh, fiction. And so the Irish thing is just merely an aside, as Paris is an aside or London is an aside. Um, but I think what it, the focus on individualism, I think, is important, but also its focus on language itself. And certainly the Irish story, because of the official language in Ireland, even today, is Irish or Gaelic, right? But nobody really speaks of our everyday conversations are in are in the English language so there's a kind of dichotomy there a doubleness um, um, uh, and and Joyce sort of explo- exploited that and he really exploited it in the sense that he wasn't afraid of the English language well I was going to ask yeah. you was there ever a sense that Joyce or any of the other authors at the time felt that they were writing in a borrowed language oh absolutely absolutely because he uses it so beautifully. Yes. And I think it's it's the idea that he always realised that there was another language. There's a wonderful moment in Portrait when he um, he's coming into university and the dean of studies there who's a Jesuit priest but is from England and they're trying to light a fire and there's this implement called the Tundish. The Tundish scene as it's famously called. And um, Tundish is actually an old English word that had fallen out of use in uh, in Britain but had remained in use in Ireland. It sort of happens, one of those linguistic kind of uh, curiosities. And so they debate the meaning of the word and the Englishman says, I don't know what that means. And Joyce said, well, look, that's what we, that's the word we use uh, in Drumcondra where we speak the best English. So, you know, how come I'm telling you your own language? But it allows him to have this moment when he talks about the language in which we're speaking is his before it is mine. Um, the words Christ, home, ale, master are his before uh, they are mine. His language is both familiar and foreign. Uh, and he sort of frets in the shadow of that language. He recognises that the English language has been imposed uh, and the difficulty is how to make it tell your story as opposed to someone else's story. And that would be true, I think, of a lot of... Well, it's true of Malaysia. Malaysia. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that surprises me here. I was saying it to someone today that English is everywhere. I mean, I don't feel like in order coffee, I can, um, you know, I see it on the ads, particularly, which I think is interesting. You but know? also we have a sense of ownership over the language yeah. here as well, in yeah. that politics aside, mm. I think a lot of Malaysians still feel very much that it is their language. I yeah, mean, yeah. we're trilingual in many ways, <laughs> and this is just one, one, of, one yeah. part of that trinity, yeah. right? Um, but certainly what, in Ireland, the language question at the time was to the forefront because people wanted to resurrect and and connect and reconnect with the Irish language of course, I but mean, they also the recognize nationalism that, of course but yes but they also recognized that to have an art solely in the Irish language would only mean that we would talk to each other and not to a, a wider audience so the English language allows a writer such as WB Yeats or Joyce enter into that international conversation or discourse I, I think one of the most remarkable things that Joyce did was of course because Ulysses is inspired by Homer's Odyssey. Mm. And yet the book, as far as I've gotten through it, (laughs) never feels derivative. Mm. And I think that's a remarkable thing when you are are 
basing a book on something else. I mm. mean, the only other person who's who's come close, I think, is probably Graham Greene with Monsignor Quixote, where the book never feels yeah. derivative of Don yeah. Quixote. It feels like it's paying homage, right. it's paying yeah. tribute, but that's about it. Yeah, yeah. Which is really yeah. something. No, and I think that the the. The Odyssey references, I think, are important because the Odyssey in Western uh, culture and literature is a founding text. I think there's also a way in which Joyce is using it because, again, thinking of the political moment uh, out of which Ulysses is written, um, you look at other writers who are using a Cuchulain, the Cuchulain figure who's a great mythological hero in, in Gaelic uh, culture. So there's a sense of looking for heroes very hyper-masculine uh, heroes who will defeat the British and so on, right? Uh, and so I think he's using um, Odysseus and the Odyssey as a way to, I suppose, meditate or contemplate the nature of the hero and then having his Leopold Bloom um, be a much more human hero, not a supernatural hero in that way, I think is, is, uh, is, is important um, because he's not saying that you need to be a great fighter or need to be um, um, this person of action that you hear heroism can be found literally uh, in, in the everyday. Another aspect of, of the Homeric references, I think, is that, and this happens in other literature, I think T.S. Eliot in, in The Wasteland and so on, there's a sense in which he goes, looks back at um, at, at older Greek culture and, and, you know, references to Shakespeare and so on to say how the world has declined since that glorious past. And maybe Joyce is doing the same. What I think is, he's not just saying, oh, um, aren't we a bit like the Greeks? But wow, they're a bit like us. It's yeah. just a slight little maneuver. But suddenly that whole past, that whole tradition becomes relevant uh, to him as a writer. And I think he wants us to feel that relevancy too, that we don't need to discard or, or, or think that uh, that literature that culture is beyond us or outside us, that it's a part of us. And what we need to do is to constantly revisit it uh, and re-energize it and ourselves uh, in that engagement. Well, it's funny you mentioned The Wasteland, right? Uh, yet again, it's one mm. of my favorite poems. And I wanted to ask you about Ulysses in the digital age because mm. Wasteland, for me, one of the best experiences I had reading The Wasteland was on the iPad. Uh, they released this app and... It was remarkable because it gave me so much more insight into what this poem was about, these points of inspiration, these mm. references, these even performances of the poem. Mm. And it feels to me like Ulysses is the perfect book for the digital age because God knows I need footnotes <laughs> when I'm reading this book. We all need footnotes. Uh, we all. No, and there actually, I think there's a, a project at the moment of, of digitizing, and I think it's about even entering into a virtual reality uh, oh. of the 16th of June, 1904, right? And I'm at a conference uh, later uh, this month uh, and they're launching this, right? So I'll be able to tell you in a month's time. But so like an, an interactive experience of it. So you can go to Eccles Street. Wonderful. You can go to the beach. You can go to the city streets. I mean, I mean, I think, that, and I mean, I suppose of a lot of technology at the moment is about immersing yourself in virtual realities or other realities. I mean, this is a perfect uh, a perfect text to sort of uh, use it. Uh, but I, 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 I agree that um, the text does need its footnotes. We do need to be guided through it. And I know, and I understand, because I am that, uh, that kind of person too, that, you know, sometimes it's very daunting because Joyce purposely felt, I am not going to 
explain things. I am not going to give any kind of traditional introduction to a character that they're a certain age and they like this and they do that and they're married to such and such. No, everyone just... The yeah, world you're thrown feels, in the middle. You're, yeah. The world is lived in. Yes. It's there. Yeah. You're just dumped in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you have to put it together. You, hopefully, if you finish the novel, that you'll get all the facts and you can say, ah, Leopold Bloom, he's... 36 years of age he works as an advertiser in a newspaper his wife is Molly Bloom she's having an affair you know all of that information it's all there but it isn't in that nice kind of conventional introductory paragraph that sort of tells us who uh, who is what but I do think he, he and that is that kind of I, I, you know colonial relationship to Britain is that Conan Doyle didn't have to do it when he introduced Sherlock Holmes we all know that Baker Street is in London. We all know uh, that London is the centre of power and uh, economics and, and politics and empire. Um, so there's no explanation needed. So Joyce said, well, I'll just do the same with Dublin. But of course, nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> nobody knows Dublin. Uh, or they certainly didn't then. Um, uh, and so he just throws us into the middle of it. Uh, and we flounder. But hopefully, um, you know, knowledge is, is gleaned uh, in that engagement. A long time ago, you're going to hate me for saying this. A long time ago, I wrote in a review that I was convinced that Ulysses was an elaborate prank by James Joyce on the world of literary criticism. <laughs> I don't think you would be the first to have sort of said that. He said in in, uh, in Finnegan's Wake, uh, which if you think Ulysses is difficult, Finnegan's Wake is on a different planet, as it were. Um, but he has a kind of character... Um, who is writing and he's over his breakfast and a fork falls on his text. And he's like, oh my goodness. And, and basically the gist of it is, oh well, this will keep the literary critics going for 40, 50, 60 <laughs> years. And how right uh, he was. Yeah, an elaborate prank. Uh, certain critics sort of see that, that it's that kind of typically aloof, modernist thing that, you know, James Joyce wrote Ulysses because he could, Right. There is an aspect of that. It's clever. It's knowing. It's self-conscious. Um, it's full of knowledge that you and I, we don't have that education and we, that's when we need the footnotes. But there is a sense in which he also wrote it not just as a prank, but uh, he did write against the kind of conventional 19th century novel. He did try and render um, Irish experience as it is lived and not misrepresented by you know, um, you know tourists or or the or the British, but also even forms that might not capture the nuances of everyday Irish life. And I think he did it and in one way. Really, what 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 Ulysses is is just Irish people having a conversation with themselves, and it's like if we're on a bus or something, overhearing. And you're eavesdropping. Yeah, you're eavesdropping, and you have no context. Um, and yet, out of that eavesdropping, you can get something essential about these characters and about the, the situation. There's also politics in it. There's also uh, meditations on Irish history, um, issues around gender. Um, uh, very, it's actually very civic-minded. It actually, it's a kind of guide, and Leopold Bloom is concerned about how we live in the city. What's the best way of, of living in the city? So, for instance, he's wandering around, and... He realizes he needs to go to the toilet, and at that stage, they've, uh, they're no longer there. They've been closed up. There were public toilets uh, around uh, the city, um, so he can go as a man. And then he says, "Where do women go? 
There's no... So this is the city built by men for men. And he's like, that's not fair. So what do women do? And he says, oh, they must do this or they have to go there or go into a shop and ask and they use uh, uh, the conveniences and so on. But he's just constantly thinking about, well, we need to make this place livable. So there's something very civic-minded uh, about him. And again, I think it's something that people find attractive no matter where they are because, you know, lots of us live in cities now. And as we know the traffic here, for instance. <laughs> Can this be improved? Perhaps, perhaps not. But it's, it, it's what exercises bloom, you know. How can we live better? So every year on June 16th, people celebrate Bloomsday, which is kind of a recreation of the day's events, if you will, <laughs> in Ulysses. I remember taking part in a Bloomsday during my university years uh, over in Bristol. It seemed like an excuse to do a lot of drinking. Uh, how is it celebrated over in Dublin? It's actually become more and more popular over the recent past. Um, when I was in university in the 1980s uh, on Bloomsday, what people did was to go to certain uh, places that would have appeared uh, in the novel. In the book, yeah. yeah. So uh, the Ormond Hotel uh, for the Sirens episode or Davy Burns Pub or just various, the National Library. And so they'd have readings, basically, and anybody could come along. It really was people power. This wasn't, you know, the state wasn't involved or the universities weren't involved and so on. So people were saying, I'm going to do this. It sort of mushroomed from that. And now people dress in Edwardian sort of gear, uh, with little sort of boater caps and bowler hats. Um, they read, there's music events, uh, there's lectures. Uh, and again, in various sites, sort of, you know, now they're, you know, holy sites of, uh, for, in terms of Joycean um, uh, studies. And it's a celebration. And I think it's wonderful because it's not official. You know, it's not like our St. Patrick's Day, which is our national holiday, or it's not like a bank holiday or May Day or any of these things. It's purely out of, out of work of art. I think, of course, lots of people haven't read the novel but they're happy to sort of celebrate uh, it in many ways. And if they did read the novel, they'd realise, you know, he's, you know, as I said, he's kind of critical <laughs> of certain aspects of Irish life that still sort of uh, remain. Um, but it's, it's a kind of, it's just a celebration, I think. Um, and it's, as I say, universities uh, or, or, you know, the officialdom don't really get involved, which I think is the way it ought to be. Um, it's people sort of saying, I want to celebrate this text. I want to read my favourite section uh, from Ulysses. So that's the idea of, of people making it um, their own. And that's what Joyce wanted. He did want, he felt that there was nothing in the novel, despite all the, the arcane knowledge at times, that, that at some level anybody could read the text and take something away from it. That these are ordinary people. And so when Stephen Dedalus is talking about medieval philosophy and church teachings from 500 years ago, it doesn't matter what it is he's saying. It's the idea that he has those thoughts, right? And in many ways, he's a bit of a prig. So um, we shouldn't really listen to him. It's Lebo Plume, who doesn't have, he's not burdened by his education, <laughs> uh, is, is a much more down-to-earth character. So tell me this, Derek, before I let you go, how does one best read the book? I think I've made it, 100, 150 pages in before I've given up. Multiple, multiple attempts, mind you. Uh, <laughs> but so many editions of Ulysses are often, I guess, weighed down by mm. extensive introductions and forewords and footnotes and all of that. I mean, is it best for someone to approach the work in its rawest form? I think it can be. And people have said that it's, it's, it's a novel that can be read aloud. Uh, and there are readings available on YouTube and, uh, and all the technology and so on. And sometimes that can that can help you because you realise what is important and what isn't important. 
Um, I think the difficulty is the stream of consciousness because a lot of this is happening in people's minds. So there's a great moment in, in uh, when Daedalus is walking along Sandy Mount Strand when he imagines going to visit his uncle and aunt. And there's three pages and then you realise... But he's only imagining it. It doesn't happen. <laughs> but he imagines, oh, hello, come in and have a cup of tea and all of that. And then you realize that, oh, none of this happened. He's still on the beach. He's just thinking about what would happen if he went. So I think we sometimes um, um, uh, get overwhelmed by that. But I think it's, it really is a case of, of jump right in and take from it what you can. Um, I do think footnotes and the guides can be helpful. But I also think that to immerse yourself in it, first of all, is the way to go and then come back with the footnotes in hand and, and the guides, as it were, uh, and, and, and maybe certain things will be illuminated or hopefully things will be illuminated for you. All right. Well, you know what? I'm going to give it another shot. <laughs> Thank you very much, Derek. Thank this you. has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Derek Hand. He's a senior lecturer and head of the School of English in Dublin City University. Go check out James Joyce. Go check out Ulysses. I know I am. I'm going to buy the book right now and start reading it again for like the 10th time. You've been listening to Bookmark, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.